Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? Today on the show, we have Alex Benayan. Uh, Alex is an incredible author, speaker, world traveler. He dropped out of USC at the ripe age of 18 to track down some of the most famous, successful people on the planet, people like Lady Gaga, Bill Gates, Steven Spielberg. And he was asking these people how they got their first break. The result was his incredible book, The Third Door, which just recently became a USA Today bestseller. He's currently traveling around the world, speaking to Fortune 500 companies, and has one of the most brilliant takes on how to make your dreams a reality, how to take the first step, make things happen in your life. And today we focus on one central idea, and that is what is the number one thing that gets in between people and building the life they want? of making their dreams a reality. So without further ado, here is Alex Benayan. So ladies and gentlemen, Alex Benayan in New York City on the Third Door Book Tour. Welcome to What's the Big Idea. Thank you very much. Um, Excited to be here, man. I'm so excited to be doing this right before you hop on a plane back to the West Coast. And uh, the reason that I wanted to have you on the show is because... I see you operating in the world in a very different, unique way. You operate in business with this kind of tenacity to really understand the industries that you occupy. You are achieving a level of success that most people will never touch at a very young age in your early 20s. And you have a knack for building incredibly deep, meaningful relationships. Mm. And so as a... Uh, somewhat unobjective observer as one of your friends, <laughs> I was curious to see what it is that you would bring to the show when I ask you what is the one piece of insight or advice that you wish everybody could know? First of all, thank you. It means a lot, man. And you've been a big part of why my life is so good. I mean that. Um, my big idea is about why most people do not achieve their dreams. And I've been studying it, you know, for the past seven years with the third door. And in many ways, I've been studying it, you know, on the scale of the world's most successful people. So for business, Bill Gates, for music, Lady Gaga. But what's been really interesting since the book came out, I think eight months ago now, is I've been able to get all this feedback from thousands of readers and even just being on book tour, you know, you know, meeting thousands of people at these events and hearing their stories. And it's fascinating how they're all the same story when you peel it back. And the reason people do not go after their dreams sounds simple, but it's a very complicated issue. And it's fear. And, you know, that might sound very, you know... Duh, but it's not duh. You know, if you ask anyone, you stop someone on the street and you say, why are you not going after your dream? I am fairly confident nine out of 10 people will not use the word fear. They'll say, I 
can't leave my current job. I, my husband won't support me. My parents, you know, think I need to be a doctor. You know, there's so many other reasons, Mm. but what's been cool about being able to almost like an anthropologist study success and achievement the past seven, eight years, when you pull it back and you ask why and why and why, and you keep pulling back the layers at the end of the day, it's fear and it's not fear of not being able to achieve it. I think that's where people mix it up. They think it's, and I'll give some context too, you know, the third door analogy. So, you know, like I said, for the past seven years, I've been researching all these people for my book. And this was really the book I was dreaming of reading. And what ended up happening was that, you know, when I started off on this journey, you know, I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, there was no part of me that wanted to find that quote unquote one key to success. You know, we've all seen those business books or those TED Talks, and normally I just roll my eyes. But what ended up happening is I started realizing every single one of these people treats life and business and success the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. So there's always three ways in. There's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. You know, that's the first door. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You either wait your turn or you're born into it. But what I've learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Gates sold his first piece of software or how Spielberg became the youngest director in Hollywood history. They all took the third door. Now, going back to you know the big idea of why do most people not achieve their dreams or not even not achieve, why don't they even attempt to go after it? Yeah. And again, you know, although I said the answer is fear and it sounds simple, it's more complicated. Where the fear lies is not in the process of, you know, running down the alley to get into the third door. You would be shocked that most people who actually set off on their journey and are fully committed to it will figure it out. You'll stumble, you'll fall, but you'll eventually figure, you'll find a window, you'll find the kitchen door, you'll find some way in. The reason most people don't go after their dream is because they're afraid to leave the line of the first door. You know, the line that's well lit, you know, all your friends are standing in it, your parents expect you to be there, you know, you're fed in that line, everyone in your community is like giving you a thumbs up for being in that line, you were taught since kindergarten, if you leave the line, you'll die, you know, very strong messaging your entire life that that line is the only way to survive effectively in this world. So the fear, again, it's not running down the alley. The fear is what will happen if you leave the first line. What you'll lose. What you'll lose. Oh, interesting. People, you, you would, even someone who has like, they think they have nothing to lose. You know, they hate their job. They, they're working nine to five. They're unfulfilled. They're miserable. They're depressed. They, you know, they're not they're not in a relationship the fear of it getting even worse 
is the biggest stranglehold on why most people don't attempt attempt to achieve their dreams. Wow. It reminds me of uh, something my friend Matisse talked about. So she does a lot of work in this thing called constellation therapy, which is totally awesome and wacky, where they basically have people come and improvise in like a stable with horses, where horses become like your family members and you interact with them. <laughs> it's really cool. And so she was talking with a therapist once, and a therapist talked about how how much more capable people are of change when they hit rock bottom. Correct. Because it's when they are afraid of what it is that they're going to lose that they don't take a step towards their better life. So it's like even when you're dealing with someone who's in an abusive relationship or a job that they hate, it's the fear that they're not good enough for something better than what they have and that they just stay there because they're afraid of losing what they don't even like. Correct. Yes, I'll take it even further, right? Let's say someone's in an abusive relationship. There is a fear of, okay, I'm in an abusive relationship, but at least I have uh, a roof over my head or at least I have food and I have friends. The fear is if I leave this abusive relationship and I sort of tell people I'm in an abusive relationship, well, the things that I have, even the very little things that I have, all turn on me. Hmm. Will my friends abandon me? Will my you know, parents not believe me? There's a lot of, and, and those are real reasons. I don't want this to be misconstrued as me knocking it. No, I'm just sort of identifying it. This is why most people don't attempt to achieve their dream. Totally. So what do you say to the person who, if we're making kind of this unknown known by talking about this kind of, you know, aversion to losing what we have, even if it's not what we really want. Um, what do you say to the person who's in that place? Of I love that what you just said, a, a version of losing something that we don't even want. Totally. Which is true, right? But dude, human, look, it's also, you have to just understand human beings are wired to survive. And if you're surviving in the first line, you're not thriving, you're not happy, but you're surviving. Mm. Why risk going down a dark alleyway where there might be someone who mugs you and st- or stabs you or you trip in a pothole? You don't know what it's like there. And especially if you come from a family where no one else has left the first line or you're in a friend group where no one else is. You know, that's why they say you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. If you're the only friend in line for the first door and all four of your friends have run down that alley and taken the third door and have succeeded, you know, they might have gotten bumped up on the road, but they eventually achieved their dream. Your odds of leaving that first line are exponentially higher as opposed to someone who all their friends and all their family are also waiting in that line of the first door. So what do you say to the person who is maybe in this place where whether they're in a tough spot or whether they're surviving and getting by and living a good life, but have that feeling that there's a dream or something that they're telling themselves is not possible and that the people around them won't support them in pursuing. Once you unearth this fear of, again, we'll, we'll call it loss aversion. What do you say to that person? Well, first of all, it's all good. I really don't think, look, at the end of the day, we're all going to die. And there's not an award at the end of life. It's, you know, it's not like you're on your deathbed and if you achieved your dream, God comes down and gives you a special trophy. Or if you didn't achieve your dream, you get a punishment. If you're, And even to the point of if you're a nice person, I really don't think you get a trophy for that either. 
The question is, how do you want to use the limited amount of time we have on this earth in a way that is the best for you? And what's good for you might be different for me. And what's best for me might not be best for you. Um, So you definitely don't want to be prescriptive in the sense of the only way to happiness is to achieve a dream. Now, let's move on. Let's say... I love that. You, let's say you do really want to, for your own reasons, go after a dream. Okay. Now let's talk. And I think that preamble is important because I think a lot of, you know, the podcast space and the business book space, it's almost like it makes people feel bad if they're not like crushing it or achieving their dream or hustling. It's like, dude, your life is way different than my life. You know, some people have to work three jobs to help pay for their mom's you know, treatments or help pay for their kids who have, you know, special needs to get special attention. People have different cards. And I definitely don't want to say the only way you can be happy and live a good life is to go after a crazy dream. Now, if your question is, let's assume they do want to go after that dream. What do you say to them? Yeah. The question is, looking that fear in the eyes and how to do that. And, you know, one of my favorite books that I highly recommend to everyone is a book called When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. She's a Buddhist nun, and it's the one book that changed my life the most. I have it on the floor. When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. And something she talks about a lot is that fear is a natural part of the human existence. And, you know, you can take that even further. You know, fear is a natural part of any entrepreneurial endeavor. It's a natural part of the journey to achieve a dream. And what's powerful about accepting that as a truth, people think myself included, especially when I was starting out, fear was a signal that something is wrong. Which makes sense. If you're like out like in a forest and you feel fear, that might mean like someone's out to get you. But when it comes to achieving a dream, when you're in a somewhat safe environment, We think that fear is a warning sign to stop. When you come to terms with the fact that fear is a natural part of the human experience, you can sort of sit your fear down in your mental living room, you know, let it sit down on the couch, you know, offer it some tea and sort of ask it questions. And again, all this is easier said than done. It's taken me years of, you know, therapy and journaling and getting the shit beat out of me to come to this point. But if you sit down and ask your fear questions, things become a lot more clear. What questions do you ask your fear? And I, I recommend everyone do this on paper, not in your head. Things are very confusing in your head, but if you write down on paper, things become clearer. So I would re- literally recommend someone to take out a journal yeah. and write whatever their whatever their fear is. You know, fear that if I you know try to become a singer, I might lose my job at this accounting firm. Write down the worst and best case scenarios and really like do not sugarcoat it. The, you know, the, my great grandpa had this quote that lying is bad, but there's only one thing worse lying to yourself. Hmm. He's dope, huh? <laughs> like that's some wise, that's some wise stuff. Totally. Um, and I agree 100%. So when you write your best and worst case scenarios, can I pause on that for one second? Yeah. Which was, if we're talking about questions, I would say that on that, the question of where am I lying to myself is also just a really powerful thing to consider as you brought that up. 
You know, it's so funny. Me and my mom and my sisters were having dinner a couple of weeks ago. And we went around the table, everyone having to answer that question. Seriously? What are you lying to yourself about? And who got really deep, but very uncomfortable. Yeah. Because we actually all said the true, oh my God, it was very intense. And obviously I won't go into it out of respect for their privacy, but yeah. everyone said the real thing that they're lying to themselves about. Totally. It's like the thing that- you A lot of it has to do, most people lie about health things. Health- and things that go on in your head, of course. Totally. But it's the thing that is felt that you're not giving words to. You don't want to give it power almost. Even in your own head. Forget yeah. about to others. The question is, what are you lying to yourself about? Totally. It's like the thing that you just don't even want to give credence to. You don't want to give power to because you're afraid. Like, you're in fear. You're afraid of what it will do when you give it a voice in your own head. Totally. Yeah, very interesting. What's interesting is one of the things that we talk about in men's work on that front is the idea that when we share emotions, our relation to them evolves. And so it's like if we're feeling something or thinking mm-hmm. something, yeah. so if we have a fear of something and we're not and we're lying to ourselves about it, if we're holding it inside, if we're dealing with that as an individual versus the moment that we share that, our relationship to the emotion itself that is felt changes and evolves. And so we can look at it from a new way, which is the power of, again, asking yourself that question, whether it's just to yourself or with a group of people. But I don't want to derail it. So I want to go back to the initial question, which is, again, it's like we're actually asking the questions to understand the fear and go from there. Yeah. So when you, you know, write on a sheet of paper, what are your best and worst case scenarios? Yeah. I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, when I was starting out writing this book, I, oh, you know, I'll give a very fun example. You know, it's something that's a little light, but it's, it had some stakes to it. So, you know, the background of the story, as you know, is, you know, I was 18, this was the book I was dreaming of reading, and the genesis was, what if I could go and interview all the people who I looked up to, and ask them when they were just starting out, when no one would take their meetings, you know, no one would answer their calls, how do they find a way to break through? And that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in, I thought, you know, if no one's written this book, why not write it myself? And I thought I'd just call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else, and I'll be done in a few months, that I assumed would be the easy part. The hard part I figured was getting the money to fund the journey. You know, I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of our mitzvah cash. So, <laughs> you know, there had to be a way to make some quick money. So two nights before final exams, I was in the library doing what everyone does in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook. And I see someone offering free tickets to the prices right. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this dream? You know, not my brightest moment. Plus, I had a problem. I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. You know, I'd seen bits and pieces as a kid, but I'd never seen a full episode. And I had finals in two days. You know, I told myself it was a dumb idea and to not think about it. And, you know, we can almost pull back here and say that was the moment where I told myself, I've never seen the show before. No, that wasn't the real reason. The real reason was I was afraid of if I attempt this, what might happen. And for some reason, the idea kept clawing itself back into my mind. So to prove to myself it was a bad idea, I did exactly what I just said. I opened my notebook and I wrote best and worst case scenarios down. Almost to ask myself, why am I really not doing this? And, you know, I wrote down the worst case scenarios, you know, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid. Mom stops talking to me. No, mom kills me. You know, there's all these reasons not to do it. And then the pro was maybe, maybe 
with enough money to fund this dream. Yeah. And it was almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a, me in a direction. And there's something powerful too about seeing the best and worst case scenarios list and seeing 20 good reasons not to do something. And, you know, just one reason to do it. And look, I also think that's why these moments are why we call them pivotal moments. They don't happen every day. I would say most days of the week, I'm making pretty thoughtful, logical decisions. But there's something powerful about looking at the worst case scenarios and saying, is that really... Like, will I, would I be willing to live with those? You know, lose, you know, first of all, those are my first things I wrote down. Sure. And there's something also cool about you write it down because those are your emotional fears. And then with your logical brain, you can look at them and sort of like cross things off. I felt mom's going to kill me. Is my mom actually going to murder me? No, she's not. Um, is my mom even going to stop talking to me over this? No, she might be mad for couple weeks but like so you can actually start looking it's so interesting how sometimes the worst case scenarios to you are emotional and i would actually say the majority are emotional fears not logical realities that's an important distinction can you say that one more time it's not you know most fears are emotional fears not logical realities Mm. but that's why you have to write them all down first and in your head it's hard to decipher what's what so write it all down and write every fear down so you can then sort of step back and be like all right again going down my list fail finals i probably won't fail even if i don't and i ask myself even if i don't study at all i could probably get a c i you know i've been to class i've been doing my homework like i'm gonna see even if i don't study at all but i i was emotionally felt i would fail but realistically i probably wouldn't yeah um get kicked out of pre-med possible very unlikely you know and you sort of like go through them and sort of like debunk them and sometimes there are real things you know i remember one of the things on my list and i still had i I have it somewhere that real list one of them i wrote down was like look fat on tv and i was like yeah i might look like an idiot on tv (laughs) like that one i can't prevent um one of the things on the list i remember this wow was on the worst case scenarios is invest all this time and walk away with nothing because just because you go on the game show doesn't mean you're guaranteed anything that was actually the worst one of all of them to me that you're not guaranteed anything by taking this risk but what's cool is like you when you start looking at your emotional fears logically they start to melt away it's sort of like when a kid is like afraid of of like the monster under the bed, you like turn on the lights and you go and you have to physically go under the bed, look and see there's nothing there. Well, it's like, and that's what writing it down is. Yeah. It's like our, our brains are looking to solve something in an analytical tactile way. And if we're responding to emotional ephemeral impulses, it clouds our ability to make the right choice. But what you're doing by this is like by actually getting people to write down their fears, you're able to have a more tactile kind of approach to decision making, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So then what happened when you wrote down all these fears? What was the decision? Um, I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study, 
but I didn't study for finals. I said how to hack the prices right. There we go. And I went on the show the next day and did this ridiculous strategy and I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the book. Which is when I first met Alex Benayan, how many years ago now? I was 19, so that would be seven years ago. So I sit down at the Summit Series in Eden and uh, Utah, and I meet this 19-year-old kid who tells me this unbelievable story and has the most infectious energy I've ever encountered upon meeting someone for the first time and just immediately became friends. And what that spawned is remarkable. And we mm-hmm. made it in the book, too. It's in the book, yeah. That whole scene is in the book. And so you, you've talked about writing it down, about making these emotional impulses real by actually showing yourself what it is that you're feeling so you can make better decisions. And so from that place, like, what's the resistance that you get to people? Like when you speak about this around the country, what's the biggest resistance that you hear from people about this idea of like going for their dreams? Like, do people come back and say, do you know, I'll tell you a great thing someone asked yesterday. Yeah. I was giving a keynote because um, now that the book's out, a big thing is, you know, going to these different companies and I was giving a keynote to WeWork uh, here in New York City. They had, you know, an executive employee offsite and after my speech, you know, there's Q&A and someone, it was the final question too. So before she asked the question, I was like, give me something really good. And she's like, all right, this is like my hardest question that I deal with. She said, I always have these goals and I always start them. I never finish them. And I was like, she's like, how do I stick through it? She's like, you, you stuck through this book for seven years. She's like, I can't even do something for like seven weeks. She's like, how do you stick through things? And I gave her this example. And actually I heard Tony Robbins say this once and it really, it's never left me. And I'll, I'll tell it to you. Ready? Yeah. Andrew, across the street, you know, a building is on fire and there's a $10 bill. And I'm like, Andrew, let me tell you a little secret. There's a $10 bill on the third floor. Would you run in to go grab it? Burning building. No. No. If I said, Andrew, burning building, hero is on the third floor. I couldn't even finish my sentence. You would already be inside. Yeah. And that is way of understanding life right totally you would run into a burning this is you would run into a burning building without even going through the pros and cons because you care so much about what's on the other side yeah and what i took from that you know that example is that it's not our obstacles that stop us from achieving our dream it's not caring enough about what's on the other side Hmm. And so when you started this project, what I want to know now is what was on the other side? What allowed you to... Oh my God. It was such a big, fantastical dream. And it's cool that it's come to this is come how, to life. This is how many years in the making? Seven years. Seven years. When I was 18, I had this dream that if all these people came together, you know, not for press, not to promote anything, but really just to share their best wisdom with the next generation, young people could do so much more. And there's something about that like larger than life journey that really changed my understanding 
and my desire to trudge through the mud to make it happen. That was my thing that made me go through the burning buildings. And so from that place of now, one thing I want you to touch on as well is, you know, when we talk about the idea of why people don't go for their dreams. Yeah. What's funny about that is like, I immediately associate that with going for my dream. Right. But one thing that I think is really important is about like how I've heard you frame this mission about not necessarily being about just doing what you want to do, but in terms of how we can help. Oh yeah. This is the thing. You know, all these people are like, what's your why? What's your impact? What's your mission? Like, all right, all that's good. You know, all that's fun in games. It's great. And I really mean that. It's great. Yeah, but let's also be real. You know, I also, you know, wanted to write a book and I want, you know, I had, I was insecure. I wanted to be known and I wanted people to admire me. Let's just be real. I, you know, I wanted all that stuff too, but and I am very adamant about this because I've thought about this a lot. When I was getting just the shit beat out of me by Warren Buffett or Zuckerberg or all these situations that blew up in my face the past seven years, if the only thing I cared about was like saying my name on the cover of a book, dude, I would have given up a long time ago. And dude, it's the reason I become so emotional when I see letters from readers saying that this has changed their life. I spent seven years imagining that maybe someone would be impacted in the way that I wish I would have been impacted. And you have the best framework. And if you want to share it, I love it, which is when people try to find their purpose, go back to what you suffered from. Do you want to share that story? So one of the things that I oftentimes think about when I'm working with youth audiences especially, but it's it's applicable for everybody, is the idea of, I even go beyond purpose. I think of it as a calling. and that I love that, because this book feels, le- feels felt like a calling. Like a calling, right? Yeah. And the difference, I think, between purpose and a calling is a calling is something that is very individualized. Like something that you have to do, as opposed to purpose, which is a connection to something fulfilling and rewarding, And so I think of the idea of you find your calling by looking back at your own life and you find the time where, especially coming of age, you struggled, where you had difficulty or challenge. Oh my God, this is is the reason I wrote my book, go on. (laughs) Where you struggled coming of age. And then as you get older and you think about all of the ways that you've grown, all of the skills, all of the knowledge, but most importantly, your experience, what you have endured uniquely suits you to be of service to people that are currently going through that challenge. So your story becomes uniquely suited to help people who are currently going through that challenge. And so it's leveraging what only you have experienced to uniquely be of service. And that's how I really think about a calling. And it's that's why I wrote my book. And that's why I, I do these public speeches. That reason. Exactly. And how would you articulate what the, the challenge was that you were going through? I didn't know what was possible. I grew up, you know, I'm the son of Jewish immigrants. I came out of the womb. My mom cradled me in her arms, and then she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. (laughs) And 
I know in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween. Even when I was way older, when I was, you know, 17, I remember um, I was like in student government and we were at a family party and some family friend goes up to my grandpa and was like, you know, your grandson might be president one day. And my grandpa, without missing a beat, goes, yes, president of the Medical Association of America. (laughs) It was, and he was not being funny. He was pretty much saying like, this is it. And what's interesting is, you know, that's actually high aspirations for a kid, you know, to be a doctor. That's a that's a great accomplishment. Um, but I was essentially told implicitly that anything other than that is not possible or even worse, we won't approve of it. Yeah. And the soul of this book, The Third Door, is... I believe that when you change what someone believes is possible, you change what becomes possible. And when I was 17, I didn't think any of it was, I thought the only thing possible was you study, what my parents told me, you study hard, get into college and become a doctor and have three kids and that's your life. That's why meeting you and Mickey and Elliot Bisno, it changed what I believe was possible. And it's so fun to be able to hand this book to someone and in 300 pages change what they believe is possible. Oh my God, it's the greatest gift on earth. I love that, man. And so if this continues going, like what is your vision for how this work impacts the world and the people in it? What's on the other end of what you're doing now? Hmm. Now this book is in the world. What's on the other end of it now? Oh my God, this is great. Cause I've been wondering this the same myself and the answer. I like how easily the answer just came to me. Cause this is the thing. It's already happening. What I'm doing now. Cause people always ask, why did you do the book? And the answer is for the result that's happening now. But you said, why am I doing what I'm doing now? Yeah. And the answer is to make the, you know, the third door mindset, that mindset of possibility of there's always a way more accessible. Because right now it's in a book. And if you stop people on the street, maybe eight out of 10 people will just be like, I don't like to read, which is totally cool. You know, school does a great job of traumatizing us and hating books. And you're very lucky if you survive the American school system being with a passion for reading. You're very, I, I mean that you're very lucky if you love reading after going through schooling. The only way for the most part to get the messages in this book, you know, the wisdom of, you know, Bill Gates and Maya Angelou and Quincy Jones and Larry King and Steve Wozniak and Jessica Alba and sort of this coming of age story on my part of, you know, trying to make it all happen and the price is right and Warren Buffett's shareholders meeting and chasing, you know, all these people through grocery stores. The only way you can get through that is through a book. And, you know, you can buy the hardcover, you can listen to it on audio, but for the most part, that's it. And what makes me excited right now about the work I'm doing now, even the things I was doing here in New York, is making these messages more accessible, whether it's with in-person events or through different kinds of mediums or platforms. It's just more fun to be able to shoot. It's almost like if you have 
and this is cool. I was talking about this this morning with someone of the difference between an act of service and a contribution to me feels different. Hmm. To me, service, and you know, that's the popular word in you know society right now. Acts of service, be of service, live a life of service. For some reason, emotionally, that word feels like cutting off your arm and giving it to someone else. Sacrificial. Sacrificial. You know, be of service. Do something that might not feel good for you for the benefit of the other. Yeah. And while that's very admirable, doesn't really I, I'm not super excited about it. I like it, but it's not like that's and then I heard Jerry Seinfeld use the word contribution. Where Jerry Seinfeld is not doing any acts of service, but he does feel he's contributing. And the reason that feels so good, like in my stomach, mm. is because I get what he means. He has all these jokes in his head, more jokes than he needs. <laughs> like, so he puts in some work, enjoyably, but still it's work, to take all this abundance of funny, creative, thoughtful energy he has. And share it with people. And if people like it and if their lives are bettered by it, what a beautiful contribution. Totally. And that's how I feel now with the third door. Where, you know, I wake up every morning and it's like, I want to do what's fun and I want to do what's enjoyable. And at the same time, I have all this abundance of possibility and there's always a way energy and wisdom that I learned from all these other people. I just want to find ways to contribute it back. Yeah. Have you ever heard the Japanese concept of ikigai? Mm -mm. So ikigai is this little confluence. It's like a Venn diagram you can see. And so it's I-K-I-G-A-I. Okay. And it's basically the place where what the world needs and what you like to do right. meet. Right. And it's just like, it's amazing to watch you. Right, right, right. What the world needs to me is sacrifice. The ikigai is the contribution. Yeah, so it's kind of just that place where it's, even now, what's so fun is watching the enjoyment that you get out of being in that place. And I feel that, again, service as a spearhead of just helping people to tap into fulfillment. Like, if you want to feel good to simply help other people feel good about themselves, it's like the starting place. And as you start to tap that, you start to find those places where the most divine expression of your being are exactly what is of the most service. Yeah. And whatever that is. And it's been incredible to watch you stepping into that. Yeah. And to be a passenger on this incredible journey that's touching, you know, millions of people, truly. Thank so, you. I love you very much, man. I love you too, bro. So how can these people keep up with the third door and your really compelling Instagram stories? <laughs> well, Instagram is easy. It's at Alex Benayan, A-L-E-X-B-A-N-A-Y-A-N. And if anybody gets the book after hearing this, definitely give me a shout. And the book is available wherever you like to buy books so whether that's amazon or audible or itunes or barnes and noble it's there and if any of you guys work at companies and are in the market for an incredible keynoter he's literally one of the best presenters i've ever seen and so much fun thank you an man. incredible human being i love you very much i love you too and we're gone that was 